Hey guys, this is Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Authority. I recently sat down with Oscar Torres, President and CEO of Tower Rock Oil and Gas. During the episode, Oscar walks through the last three years and all the different strategies his team explored, including secondaries, asset-backed securitization, scaling fundraising, and asset sales. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Oscar had to say. All right, Oscar, good afternoon and, and welcome back onto the podcast about three years uh, to date since you came on last time. Yeah, I'm glad to be here, Tim. Thanks for having me again. You bet. So you got a lot of interesting stuff that's been going on, namely the divestiture to Elk Range. So looking forward to jumping into that in a bit. But Q2 2020, that's when you last came on. The, the world was obviously in a very different place, shut down with COVID. Oil went negative right in that time frame. Gas, if, if I told you gas is going to go to seven to nine bucks a few years, you would have called me insane. So things have kind of, they've gone up, they come down. Uh, there's been a lot of black swans just within all that. I, I know you guys have been on an interesting journey and I think we're going to have a really interesting discussion here. But before doing all that, for those who aren't familiar with Tower Rock, the quick recap from episode one in particular, you know, what has been kind of your your MO and your strategy, the basins you look at, what does your portfolio look like, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, sure. And that makes sense. So yeah, we are, uh, Tower Rock is an, an, an aggregator of mineral and royalty interests across the lower 48. Uh, for the most part, we're, we're basically agnostic as it pertains to PDP heavy acquisitions and are more opportunistic on assets that uh, require us to underwrite any sort of undeveloped acreage. And in those instances, we generally focus more in areas that have uh, significant development activity, docks or, or permits or, or rigs or, or what have you. But uh, yeah, generally speaking, we've got a pretty diverse set of assets and continue to to build those portfolios with with similar assets across, across again, the lower 48. Uh, we own, I think, across seven states, several hundred counties, nine major basins, you know, et cetera. Okay. And if you dial it back to... Q2 2020. I mean, what did your portfolio look like at that point? Or, you know, what was going to be the strategy? And then as you march forward, we start to come out of COVID, oil starts to recover, then gas surges. I mean, have you, if you look back, have you found you've walked a straight line on, hey, this is where I saw the opportunity set and this is the strategy I'm executing, or is it really ebbed and flowed? I mean, let, let's kind of take it quarter by quarter, if you may, just going back to where you were and, and let's just go down that journey. So over to you, kind of Q2 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Certainly a lot has happened since then, as you know, and as you touched on. So Q2 2020, we were we were still trying to raise fund three. We were on our third fund. And because we bought as we, we, we acquired assets as we were raising the cash, we had already spent this around the, the, the 7 million that we had raised at that point in time. And what the, the toughest issue we had was was trying to convince future investors or potential investors that we hadn't uh, just squandered seven million dollars, you know, in the environment that we were in at the time. So at June, what were we at at that point? Forty dollar oil or something like that. And we deployed everything at an average oil price in Fund Three of say, you know, something in the mid to high fifties, right? So you're trying to you're always trying to educate new investors as is. And then, so trying against to convince them that you hadn't just spent seven million dollars and and it and it was gone was another challenge in and of itself. So that 
that became highly difficult. But yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it was definitely an interesting time and, and we learned a ton, but we didn't really, we were sitting on our hands a lot, not by choice. We were obviously trying to buy because we saw the writing on the wall. We knew this stuff was going to go up. I mean, we didn't know it was going to go up to $115 or whatever it settled at in 2022, but we certainly saw it going up and we wanted to deploy as much capital as, as possible. And so we had to get creative, quite frankly. We couldn't raise the money, so we definitely could borrow some, although you know, banks were nervous about that, how much they could, they could loan you. So we actually get, had to get pretty creative. Uh, our second fund actually had uh, some cash and it had some availability on its credit line. So uh, we actually opened up fund two to acquire alongside fund three. And we sold some assets, which was towards the end of, of 2020, which sounds counterintuitive. But in doing so, we were able to take a loss on in for, you know, for tax purposes in, in uh, 2020. But then in addition, we were able to actually just take that cash and, and buy in, in, the whole, in the wholesale space and replace that cash flow. So by way of example, we sold, say, $10,000, $11,000 worth of cash flow for several million dollars. And then we went and bought similar cash flow for a lower price point. So we were able to double, uh, almost uh, almost double the cash flow for the same amount of cash that, that we sold for. And because you're buying similar assets, but they're not identical, they're, they're not the same exact asset, you're able to take those losses and then, but actually realize more value on the, on the cash flow side. Hey guys, just wanted to take a quick break from the conversation and ask you to pull up April 10th and 11th in your calendars. If you're available and not already registered, be sure to go to mineralconference.com and get signed up for the Mineral Mark Conference being held at the Post Oak Hotel in Houston, Texas. If you're serious about deal making and investment in the mineral space, then I expect to see you there. It's a really interesting point. I mean, I where my mind goes on you know that last thought of logic is the Haynesville right now. I think there's gonna be a lot of folks who bought in the Hainesville last year are going to be in a tough spot, aren't in the position to wait five years to have the investment really correct itself, right? Or to have it come online and cash flow. And so going forward, if gas stays between two and three bucks, theoretically, there's going to be some really good wholesale opportunities to buy at lower prices. And so the theoretical example of selling something at a loss and then reinvesting it to create a, you know, a net positive, I think is a lot, a scenario, a lot of folks are going to find themselves in, in a kind of the downside of, of this gas cycle. And then oil as well, oil could very likely go down, it could bounce back up to 90 bucks, 100 bucks, no one knows. But that's the very interesting dynamic about this space is because assets are traded hands so quickly, there's so many smaller deals. And there's so many different players going direct at all sorts of levels and cost of capital. And so uh, I appreciate that insight. That's that's super interesting, but uh, continue. Yeah, so we came out of that successfully. We, we were proud of, of that, again, that creativity. Again, borrowed some money to accomplish that as well. And, and then 2021, like 2021, 2022, obviously turned out great for us. And we, were, we continued to acquire as much as we could. We shut down the funds when they ran out of cash. And then we were buying for our own account throughout that process doing similar things, selling opportunistically, and then, and then reinvesting capital wherever we could. And so that's really kind of what it's, what it's looked like, just looking for those opportunities to, to trade, a lot of horse trading, as you might imagine, up and down the, those years with the F2, F3, and our GP entities. Now, going back to your strategy, you talked about 
kind of PDP agnostic or base agnostic on the PDP side, you know, probably core Permian, core Eagleford, core Hainesville, right, for, for the undeveloped aspect. What I found interesting lately as I've worked some marketing processes, you know, particularly even Hainesville on a recent deal, we're still able to get good value on a white space deal as gas was going down because I started to see the way folks are underwriting deals on the buy side and how the strip, you know, 36, 48 months out wasn't as severely impacted as it was for Henry Hub or the 12 month strip. And so in the short term, really difficult to get the bid ask spread met on a PDP gas deal, right? Same thing when oil fluctuates a lot. So, you know, where, where my mind kind of goes, if, if I was a minerals aggregator, I find it really interesting to, you know, in, in more of this severe volatility in that shorter term, while there's a bid ask, creative financing structures, white space deals, stuff that can be used to still get deals done. And then when prices are going up and you can go and buy PDP heavy deals, duck deals, at uh at wholesale value and then you're getting that flush production under really high commodity prices just pairing those two in a portfolio seem not only the best way to maximize value for your investors but also a way to continue doing deal flow through all the different ups and downs and cycles right but over to you kind of real time as you were going through this just from a a pure deal flow perspective what were kind of the, the things you saw looking back in the rearview mirror and what worked and what didn't. Yeah. Well, our, our you know, organic processes, we, we have, do have some mailings for, for PDP and those types of things. We found that to be, continue to be successful. We still get a lot of calls from people that got a letter from us a year ago, two years ago, six months ago, you know, whatever it might be. And so we, we were still seeing that general success, most of that on the PDP side. But we were actually pleasantly surprised with uh, the amount of deal flow we saw from just uh, our from our relationships with brokers and uh, across the industry, and that was great. We were able to transact more on that, and then we thought um, than we thought we might have. And again, it's it's those types of deals are great because it shows that that people value that relationship they have with you, and 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 they trust you to come to for you to give them an answer quickly and and give them some feedback on on the on the assets they're trying to place and. And it's great to be able to say that that even on deals that we thought were a little bigger than than we wanted, we could still tap into those other relationships with folks and say, hey, let's take this down together, which we've always prided ourselves in, in being able to do. So again, leaning in those uh, leaning on those relationships that that we've made across our my career and and my counterparts' uh, careers uh, have been very very fruitful. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to all of our podcast sponsors. Over the past 20 years, Riverbend Energy Group has been the definitive leader in the non-op and mineral space, where they are actively acquiring minerals in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, the Williston, and the Eagleford. Following their $1.8 billion sale of their non-op platform in 2022, they are also back actively acquiring non-op interests in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, and Williston. If you have minerals or non-op working interests in these areas that you would like to sell, then please visit www.riverbendenergygroup.com for more information. As a leading global energy business advisory firm, Opportune is well positioned to provide world-class technical, financial, and operational capabilities to minerals and royalties companies. Whether it's back office outsourcing, resource and reserve definition, land due diligence and administration, GIS mapping, valuation work, data and system integration, financial reporting, tax advisory, or buy and sell side assistance, Opportune LLP has got you covered. 
For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Noble Royalties has been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. Noble's experience and world-class technical team will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs, mineral funds, and private owners alike to maximize the value of their mineral ownership in this dynamic market. To discuss effective mineral solutions, whether buying or selling, in the Permian, Haynesville, Eagleford, or Bakken, please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. Farmers National Company has oil and gas experts located across the country ready to provide you unmatched convenience and service for your land management needs. Whether you're looking for turnkey management of oil and gas interests or simply looking for an advisor to help you sell or lease your minerals, Farmers National Company has you covered. Learn more about Farmers National Company's team of certified mineral managers, landmen, attorneys, and accountants by going to fncenergy.com or reach out directly at energy at farmersnational.com. Yeah, because you, when you're dealing with professionals, I think they need to, everyone needs to achieve their their initiatives for their investors or if they're on their own or whatever. And so if you have done deals with someone before and you kind of look each other in the eye and say, hey, this is what I need to get achieved. This is what I need to get achieved. All right, let's lock arms. Let's do something. And there's going to be a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth deal right this year. So you don't have to explain that. It's just kind of, unspoken right and and part of part of uh why relationships really matter yeah absolutely let's go into uh, i'd like to i don't know how to paraphrase this if if it's kind of strategic alternatives that you and your team investigated these last few years i think as i i remember i'd bump into you hey oscar you should come back on to the podcast oh, just a little bit a little bit of time tim a couple more months we'll work on something interesting a couple more months and then <laughs> i'd see you again and i go oh so you ready? And you're like, well, there's been a little bit of a delay, but we're investigating something new. Uh, give me yeah. a couple months. Give me a couple months. So <laughs> through through all that, and you just had a you know very successful exit to to Elk Range and and a bunch of other things along the way, but you know a lot more, um, and I think you're more equipped going into future cycles to execute on these different tools in the tool belt, if you may. Let's start with secondaries. I would love for you to explain what secondaries are, what you appreciate them to be, and then really your education process. Because I think at a high level, at least when I see th- here secondaries, conceptually, when you're raising money, it's it's going to be great. Investors want a starter asset. They want cash flow out of the gate. So let me sell them part of my existing portfolio. And then I get some liquidity from my existing investors. And then I get a, a new partner and my funds going forward. And we're going to go uh, build a portfolio together. Conceptually, sounds great. In reality, over to you. What what were your findings? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. The the um, conceptually, those things make a lot of sense. And and you know the way that I understood secondaries and the way that it was presented to us, it was an opportunity for us to take our asset our asset base, kind of roll them all up. We had six or seven different entities at the time. And essentially roll them all up into one big portfolio, and then create some create some liquidity for some of our current LPs, and then also bring in additional capital to to go out and buy. Now, what we discovered, one of the things that we discovered was that these folks that are that are looking to buy these secondaries, the vast majority of them are looking for a deal. They're looking for some type of fire sale, some type of of situation where for whatever reason they've been instructed to 
divest of these assets for 60 cents on the dollar or, or, or whatever it might be. And what I was trying to present to those folks that were trying to buy from us is that that, that I was trying to get to, to buy into the secondaries. Like I'm going to sell these at the, the, at the valuation of at the current strip, which I believe to be the discount, right? So you're looking at the time, high 30s, and then over the course of, of when we started the process, probably high 30s, mid 40s, call it. And and so that to me is a discount. This is the discounted value. And they wanted something further beyond that. And it was interesting because the broker that kind of put this together for us, so there was the, that did the pitch deck with us and was trying to help us get it done, introduced us to this one group that was very, they seemed very excited about potentially doing something with us. And we get on the Zoom call and just kind of, he's pressing me on, on, on various elements on how we evaluate, how we did the valuation. And I couldn't figure out exactly why until he finally said, I don't believe that we'll ever see $50 oil again. And again, this was December of, of 2020. And I mean, my jaw just dropped. And I and if my broker had been live, I would have probably strangled him and said, why are you wasting my time with this guy? I can totally, I mean, if somebody said to me, and I get it, and I get it, I'm not saying just hindsight, but if somebody, if somebody said to me, we won't see $50 oil for another 12 months or 18 months, I could totally, okay, I totally could, I'd love to hear your case. That's totally fine. But ever, ever, you'll never see $50 oil again. I, was, I mean, I just wanted to hang up and just kind of get going. But anyway, it's, it's kind of a, and anecdotally, it's one, it's one of the many things that, that you kind of just faced in, in, this, in this group of folks that they just, they wanted to convince you that there was a really good reason for them to get this, these assets at a, at a, at a fire sale price. And, and we just weren't looking to do that. Uh, so there was a huge disconnect. And, and so we, we abandoned that, that, that element of it. But they love, um, they love the economics on the wholesale strategy going forward, right? That's the, disc, that's the major challenge. Yes, absolutely. They, they love the economics. They love all of that. They totally, they, the, the strategy makes sense. Everything makes sense. They just, they just really, really, you, you, you just can't get past the valuation element um, and think that's likely going to be the biggest challenge for anybody that tries to pursue that, that type of avenue, but it certainly was for us. Yeah, I mean, uh, as I've seen others investigate this, my takeaway has really been there needs to be ulterior motives of an LP for getting out. And so if at the stage of the fund, it doesn't really make sense to go through a process and sell assets because it would not be in the best interest of your other uh, LPs and also maybe you as the GP. But this one investor said, hey, we got the ESG plug pulled on us and we have to sell. And it doesn't matter if it's 60 or 70 cents on the dollar, we have to sell. And so a secondary is good in that scenario. But in the scenario, like you had mentioned, where someone's coming to come in as a new LP in future funds, but then wants to buy an interest in the previous funds, that's where I, I, I've seen so many conversations go away. So I think if if there's an LP that maybe you want to get out of your fund, you want to do something strategic going forward and they're the odd one out or they need out because of ESG reasons, I think that's where you pursue secondary funds. And let's call it space fade. Secondary funds are, you know, have distressed capital written all over it. That's what they're looking for. And so if you built a, a valuable portfolio and you have alternatives through other channels, why would you sell at a discount? It's just, they don't have the leverage over you is, is really the main punchline, which is why, why you didn't proceed it. Right. 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 No, that, that's exactly right. I think the avenue that I was pursuing really required somebody to be super aligned with, with again, realizing that you were getting everything at a, at a discount already, even using that current strip. And that really believed going forward that we would be able to capitalize on what we saw as, as a highly likely upswing 
again, not knowing it was $115, but but say it went to 60 or 62, it's still a great upswing, right? That's a 50% uptick. So, but no, yeah, you're right. And I think there is a service. There, there is a there is a vehicle out there. There are vehicles out there for people to get out as individual LPs in any given you know portfolio, and and, and that's great. That that's that's a good thing for them as well. That's just not that wasn't what we were pursuing here, and not what we found. But in that process, right, of exploring the secondaries, there was that step in the eventual execution of the secondary that required you to consolidate your portfolios into one entity. So with that scale, now opens up a variety of other options. And one of them, you know, I'll call it a, a dividend recap. It could be, you know, a, a way where you put debt onto the portfolio, not for acquisitions, but to actually return cash to LPs. And if you have a good PDP base, that could make sense at the right interest rates. There's asset-backed securitization, which obviously is, you know, becoming more in vogue. And I think scale becomes a challenge with ABS. Unless you're at a certain size, it becomes hard to execute. But Walk through, you know, you said you got creative and you took on some bank lines to to do acquisitions. When it comes from a portfolio optimization standpoint, what were your takeaways and kind of your learning lessons from, you know, the things I just just described? Well, we did look a little bit into the, the asset-backed uh, securitization. And and yeah, the, the, the basic problem we ran into is exactly what you described as scale. Uh, we just would not have the scale for that type of, of vehicle because of the fees and, and all of the administration and, and whatever number of things you'd have to go through to try to make that work. It just, it just wouldn't, wouldn't make sense. It would be cost prohibitive. And then just to, I mean, in order to attract somebody to take the other side of that transaction, I guess, is, is the main element. And then, but, but the debt side, that's been generally pretty easy. Banks are super confer, con, conservative as it pertains to lending, as they always are. They're getting a lot of uh, a lot of pressures uh, from everywhere and from every direction. And we are able to extend it. We work with Pegasus Bank out of Dallas, and, and they extend us a, a, a credit line based on a multiple on cash flow, which obviously inc- improves as you accumulate more assets and, and as prices uh, cooperate. And so we were able to to work something out with them to to get some some cash to to buy some assets during that during that time and and it continued to improve. So we were buying within cash flow in some degrees with the with the GP and also using the credit line wherever we could and then doing some of that horse trading that that we we talked about before. You know, I think strategically what could be something to look at, you know, on a on a dividend recap, which it doesn't look like you explored that. But if if you're at a point where you're looking to get back that extra 10 to 15% towards payout. And uh, this might be a way to accelerate that without asset sales. Again, uh, other things have to check out. It has to be the right interest rate environment. You have to have the right cash flow profile. Obviously, investors have to be on board with that. And that kind of you know goes into one of my next questions where interest rates have gone the last one to two years. So I, you know, we're definitely an inflationary environment. We always, because it's our business, we always talk about commodity prices, but inflation has been high. So that makes debt more challenging. And ABS, I think, becomes a little bit less attractive. I'm no ABS expert, but ABS gets you a really good cost of debt. Um, and now that's rising. But then on the flip side, when you go forward in fundraising, inflation hedge, great pitch for investors, especially high net worths. And that that benefit is real. I know from talking with family offices that have minerals that are in their portfolios, they've talked to the extreme benefit the last two years and how their portfolio really outperformed every other asset class they had in regards to the minerals and then the inflation hedge. So there's always a trade-offs, right? 
when one thing suffers, the other is a benefit. And I think it's knowing all these different things. This is why I want to go through this exercise of the lessons learned that you've had and looking at all these things, because now you're better equipped going forward on, okay, I don't have to spend time and resources figuring all this stuff out when it makes sense to execute these things. I know how they work. I know the cost structure and I know when they work the best, right? But finishing up kind of my last thought process here on the strategic alternatives, uh, if you may, you're looking at as of securitization, okay, we don't have enough scale. So then the next thought is, okay, if we had scale, we'd have more optionality. Let's look at larger funds. I think that's kind of the the dream of a lot of guys, man, if I just had a $100 million fund, if I just had $200 million, I just had an insurance company behind me. I think there's so many different things that come into play, tripping up regulatory and compliance type things with certain levels of AUM, the need for really prominent third-party advisors, third-party fund administrators and tax audit and all that stuff. You know, you, you have more and more LPs to manage just and when you're raising larger and larger funds, you're basically always fundraising, right? Because <laughs> you can deploy as you go. So there's there's a lot of different trade-offs. And just like some folks want to run a public company and some never want to deal with running a public company ever, some folks are best fit with smaller funds and some are best fit for larger funds. It's there, There's no right or wrong way to do it. You investigated all these things and have a great track record delivering for LPs with these smaller funds and have elected to continue doing that strategy. So over to you kind of in just the general takeaways from all that process for those who like yourself were saying, man, let's let's do a huge fund because that's going to solve all all problems. And it's not really the the case necessarily. Yeah, all of those are, are great points. And and yeah, you're hitting most of them spot on. We did investigate. We did pursue even to some degree a couple of those avenues. We talked about, we talked to a group out of Dallas that was a commercial real estate group that has raised a billion dollars for their commercial real estate assets uh, for their portfolios. And they really wanted to kind of team up with us to go and, and raise $100 million or whatever it might be. And they felt like they had the, the investor pool to go do that. So we 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 looked at that. Uh, we looked at raising it ourselves through a combination of institutional and family office, as well as our pool of, of investors. As I mentioned, you a little while ago, we pursued that. We looked into the secondaries as well. Bottom line is, and what's funny about it is, I was doing all this investigating. I should say funny, but what's great is that going back to our to our peers and our counterparts and all of these things, these relationships that we've formed, and and we've had so many people that have been very forthcoming and they've been great at sharing the good, the bad, and the ugly, and and talking through a lot of those things. It's just it's it's a great collaboration. But so yeah, so we've talked to people that have raised institutional institutional money, told us about all the great uh, the great elements of it and some of the pitfalls. And we talked to some other people about working with with uh, with big family offices, multifamily offices, RIAs, et cetera. And honestly, when it all kind of when we gathered all this information and it was all said and done, we we really just to your point, just said we look, we have a great pool of investors. We have we are really good at what we do at the scale that we do it. And let's just continue to, to get better at, at the acquisitions and, and the way that we acquire and divest, et cetera, and and stay in our in our pool. So to speak. So that's what we're doing. We're going to go out and raise fund four, and and it's it's going to be in the ten to twenty million dollar range again, and and we we'll just continue to do the things that we do. 
because quite frankly, uh, all of the elements that you discussed about what comes with with really big funds, we just we just weren't prepared for that. And, and we're, we're not prepared for that. We're not cut out for that. You know, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> it's just not it's just not what we want to deal with. And I will say, and I've mentioned to, this, to you this offline, I do think that that if you had the ability to tap into a $100 million fund or do a $100 million fund and, and can make it an evergreen fund, that would be a, a huge, a huge thing. That would be one thing I would consider if I had the, the right kind of partners in, in place. And But then figuring out the GP compensation for a fund like that in and of itself uh, has its own challenges. So anyway, all that to say, we really like what we've done, the way that we've done it. Our investors are happy. We have a great pool of investors and and really enjoy uh, working for them. We're now into the back end compensation for, for all of our funds. They've all done well. And so we're looking forward to showing that off in our next pitch deck and, and, and raising fund four. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to all of our podcast sponsors. Your property is your legacy, so you should only leave it in the hands of a land management company who has a legacy of its own. If you own oil and gas interests or act as a fiduciary for those who do, you can find a long-term partner at Farmers National Company, who since 1929 has taken great pride in helping clients maximize the benefits of property ownership by providing turnkey management services and by working alongside them through generational transfers of specialized assets such as oil and gas interests and farmland. To learn more, visit fncenergy.com or reach out directly at energy at farmersnational.com. Noble Royalties has been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. Noble's experience and world-class technical team will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs, mineral funds, and private owners alike to maximize the value of their mineral ownership in this dynamic market. To discuss effective mineral solutions, whether buying or selling, in the Permian, Haynesville, Eagleford, or Bakken, please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. Need energy industry management experience at your fingertips? Opportune LLP, a leading global energy business advisory firm, has the capabilities needed to overcome your minerals and royalties team's technical, operational, and financial challenges. To learn more, search Opportune's podcast E2B Energy to Business on Apple and Spotify Podcasts, where Opportune examines emerging financial and technology trends and provides a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Over the past 20 years, Riverbend Energy Group has been the definitive leader in the non-op and mineral space, where they are actively acquiring minerals in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, the Williston, and the Eagleford. Following their $1.8 billion sale of their non-op platform in 2022, they are also back actively acquiring non-op interests in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, and Williston. If you have minerals or non-op working interests in these areas that you would like to sell, then please visit www.riverbendenergygroup.com for more information. So giving you momentum into the fundraise for Fund 4 have been some uh, a successful divestiture strategy. There, there's been multiple partners and multiple strategies given the types of the assets and where they are and market appetite and all that. So as you start looking at your portfolio, I mean, you guys have long live, you know, CO2 flood type stuff. You have core core Permian, right? I mean, you have a pretty different spread of assets. Walk me through 
I guess the the PDP stuff. You had a an idea of going to market right with with a larger deal, and then ultimately have, have broken it out and found a lot of success with that with EnergyNet. Kind of walk through how all that's gone and continues to go. We've used I, I personally have used EnergyNet for for a long time back from my days in Royalty Clearinghouse and 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 here uh, here at Tower Rock, and and they do uh, they do a fabulous job. They've got a great team, and 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 we talked to them about taking out a big portfolio of PDP assets and they did a great job marketing it and but ultimately we just didn't get the types of of offers that we that we saw compared to how we have done with these types of assets traditionally when we break them apart which is counter to the other side of the coin some of the with a an asset base like the one we're transacting with with elk range it is a, a large pool of assets that we put together and the buyer thinks they're getting a, capturing great value by getting them all together, and we think we're doing pretty well by by throwing them together into one big portfolio. So it's seemingly a win-win. With these assets that we're selling via via EnergyNet, we tend to think or we we have, the tendency is to see that we do much better from a multiple or a PV perspective when we break them apart and sell them in smaller pieces. So it's been interesting to to kind of. Uh, play around with the levers and and we're blessed with with the ability to kind of be patient and 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 look for ways to capture the best value for for our investors. Now the downside of that is as you start to break these things apart, obviously the market can do any number of things and we've seen that here in the last several months. I don't know if we're still in that today, probably are, but in a you know $70 handle whereas we were looking at $80, $90, you know, just not too long ago and and so you you open yourself up to that whenever you slow down your divestiture process. But again, this isn't a fire sale anyway. So if we don't get the number we want or the number we're looking for on on these individual assets, then we have every right not to sell it. Then uh, yeah, then you you hold on to them and continue to cash flow it out. I mean, it's exactly it's a it's a cost averaging out of the market type strategy, and you're you're comfortable with the valuation you're getting. I I'm a big proponent of breaking stuff up. I, I always continue to have this conversation with folks. I don't know what the threshold is to where you start to achieve a premium for scale. Again, to your point, I think it's different for core and conventional with some upside versus PDP stuff. But you know, in general, under 10 million bucks, I don't really think you're getting much of a premium anywhere. It's just there's so much competition in the market and so many quote unquote specialists. I think breaking it up as long as you know who to go to and you know are, are able to be patient and stretch it out, like you said, then that is the best way to maximize value. But you know, there's when you get to to scale, it's harder to find stuff that is consolidated and cleaner. Um, you guys are professionals; you know what you're doing. And so, a big fund like like Elk Range needs velocity of capital. So there's different motives there, and they could pay that premium. That's that's the ecosystem. That's the daisy chain. That's why all this continues to work. But for the uh, kind of the chunkier consolidated positions, is was Permian the lion share, or do you have similar type positions in other basins that you're looking to maybe do something similar with? I'm curious on kind of we'll look. We got the small PDP stuff that you're cost averaging out of the market on, and then you have bigger consolidated portfolios. Elk Range is taking one down now. In the Permian, what's left, and is are you looking to do something similar, or is it really watching the market and and then striking when it's hot? Well, yeah, I mean, to answer one of this is the lion's share of of the assets um, across our portfolios. 
and you know, lion's share is relative. I'd say it represents about 60% of all of our uh, of, of our portfolio value. And then we've got got uh, assets that are PDP heavy across uh, all the other basins that that I that I was I was talking about before. And then we've got the uh, so we've got what we are calling a diversified portfolio of assets, and that's going to be Eagleford, Barnett Shale. Haynesville, just other basins like that. And then you've got the enhanced door recovery unit element of, of what, what we've got. These are the these are the assets that are that have produced for decades and they'll continue to produce for decades beyond that, right? At a very low rate of decline. So those are the the assets we have remaining. And and uh, and yeah, we still would like to liquidate on all of those. We'd still like to uh, transact on all of those and liquidate wherever we can. But we're not in any hurry to do so. Again, we'll we'll continue to test the market in some areas, but not so aggressively that we think we're actually still pretty bullish on both oil and natural gas. So to, to the extent that, that we can find some value that represents some of that bullishness, then then we'll transact. And if not, then we're happy holding on to them. Awesome. Yeah. And I know uh, we'll, we'll stick to the press release, but the Elk Range deal that was press released on the 1st of February, 2300 NRAs. Kind of mix of Midland and Delaware Basin, right? A lot of wells, so twenty six hundred horizontals, six thousand puds, and the you know the next twelve months cash flow three point seven million roughly. So great little portfolio. Congrats to you and the team on on building that and getting an exit. And um, yeah, I, I guess going forward, so fund four ten to twenty million, similar strategy, diversified yeah, PDP. Yeah. Kind of yeah. talk to me about what you're looking for and. Uh, you mentioned relationships. For those listening, you know what would be your preference on ways to engage with Tower Rock going forward? Well, you know, it's funny is these press releases. We have them for a reason, right? And we we have been getting a lot of phone calls from either from even some folks that we haven't you know, we've seen before, both on the buy side and the sell side. You know, people people understand we've got some cash to spend now, and and they're calling us to to spend that, and then other folks can see that we're in selling mode and, and they're calling us for that too. So th- that's been great. And so, yes, anybody that's out there that's listening that wants to reach out to us, we're, we're, we are, because of the way we're built and because of the different entities we have and the different uh, life cycles that they're in, we are in a position where we are buying some and selling others. So so please do reach out. And as far as strategy goes, it's going to be basically lather, rinse, repeat. Obviously, just like anybody else, we're learning. Uh, we learned a lot through this sale process, which Ten Oaks led for us, and, and they did a great job for us, and they introduced us to some folks, and we learned a lot about what uh, some of these uh, big end buyers are looking for, how they're looking for it, how they're looking for the their land data, etc. And we will continue to improve our processes to to make sure that caters to that, so that we have the right eyes on on these portfolios when we when we exit. Also, we have learned a lot about, we continue to learn a lot about because this is ever evolving, right? Like what, what people put value on and why. I mean, one of the things we didn't discuss, but is, is certainly germane to all of this conversation is the, the capital discipline by all the operators, right? Because we're all in the end subject to how they spend their money and the drilling activity. It's not, it's, it's not really drill baby drill anymore at the sake of anything else. Right. I mean, so you have to kind of kind of keep all keep all that in mind as you're spending each dollar. And so duck value obviously went up tremendously on the mineral side because that's the and, and that duck inventory has, has gone down, too. So my, my point is that things kind of evolve from from market standpoint. A lot of that is driven by that operator activity. So we continue to learn from all of that. And one of the things that we we, we will continue to consider is the risk adjusted returns with some of these assets that are they have very little decline that are PDP heavy 
that we're able to get for a very nice PV, call it double digit PV, and then still do uh, have some very handsome returns in the in the 1.5 to 2x uh, range. If we're able to do that on a consistent basis compared to other assets that are riskier and we're only making an average of 1.5 to 2x, you know, why would we focus on that when we can go over here to this, the safer side, quote unquote, and, and do just as well on a weighted basis? So we're continuing to look at that always and, and tweaking. And I will say that one of the things that, that we've learned also is, is uh, as, as much as we like to deal share and as much as we like to, to go out there and share deals with, with some of our counterparts, we are more in a position now than ever before to, to, to take on more risk. And so some of those deal shares may not necessarily be where we're only taking 10, 15, 20% of a deal or, uh, that, like we might have before. Now we'll be taking, now we may, may be offering 10, 15, 20% of the deal as, as opposed to taking only that, that lower percentage. So for the right opportunities. Because we are seeing that a, a lot of these end buyers are gonna are, are not really looking to, to to take on a ton of this tiny little stuff, so it's just hard to to manage, right? One mineral acre asset is just as hard to manage as a hundred mineral acre asset. So so anyway, a lot of those things we're kind of learning from uh, and applying to our new models, and we are looking forward to seeing four be uh, another great success. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on, Oscar. I, I enjoyed the conversation and. Congrats to, to you and your team and, and your investors on all the success to date. And uh, looking forward to seeing you in person here in the near term. Me too, Tim. Thanks for having me. Always great to visit with you and look forward to our next visit as well. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties podcast is meant for informational purposes only. Tim Powell and the Minerals and Royalties Authority are not promoting any specific securities or investments nor are they providing any type of investment advice. If you enjoyed the episode, then I encourage you to tune in more and also check out the Minerals and Royalties Authority YouTube channel. Thanks and see you next time.